Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. Our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome you to the second episode in our Elections Integrity series, uh, focusing on lessons that we learned during the 2020 election, as well as, as well as just setting the record straight about the facts of how elections operate, the security around elections, and again, things that we can take away from uh, what was a very unique election in 2020, and how we can continue to hone and improve that process going forward. And our guests today for this uh, session are two members of the Election Assistance Commission, uh, Benjamin Hovland, as well as Donald Palmer. And I'll start with Ben in terms of reading his bio. Uh, Benjamin Hovland's 20-year career in elections has been shaped by his commitment to improving election administration and removing barriers to voting. Most recently, he served as acting chief counsel for the U.S. Senate Committee, on Rules and Administration, where he was a driving force behind Congress appropriating $380 million in Help America Vote Act funds to enhance election security to the states in 2018. While at the Senate, he focused on the federal government's role in election administration and campaign finance regulation. He organized several hearings on election security preparations and improving election administration. He was integral to restoring a quorum at the EAC in 2015. Uh, Donald Palmer is a former bipartisan policy center fellow where he advanced the recommendations of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Uh, Mr. Palmer is a former secretary of the Virginia State Board of Elections and served as the Commonwealth Chief Election Official from 2011 to 2014. Prior to, or during his tenure, he implemented an online voter registration system and joined Virginia as a founding member of the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC, which is a nonprofit organization with the sole mission of assisting states to improve the accuracy of America's voter rolls and increase access to voter registration for all eligible citizens. He also served as Florida's Director of Elections, where he successfully transitioned the state from electronic voting machines to paper-based digital voting machines prior to the 2008 presidential election and expanded the Florida Voting System State Certification Program. Uh, hosting today's talk is Elliot Burke, the managing partner of Burke Farah. And I'm gonna turn it over now to Elliot to conduct today's interview. Great, well, thank you, John. Uh, Don, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. As John talked about, this is the second in our series on uh, election integrity. And uh, by design, what we're really trying to do here is bust through some of the hyperbole tone down the noise and talk about what actually happened uh, with the election. Uh, our first session was on election security and today we're gonna talk about overall election administration and lessons learned from this election, uh, what went right and where do we need to go from here. So uh, we've got two experts uh, that are joining us today, Den Don and Ben, not only serve on the Election Administration Commission, but they are also, uh, they've had a significant amount of experience in the states uh, so as this, is, this session is really designed to talk about and educate our viewers about the election process, let's start out with the EAC the, and what it is and what it is not. It is obviously not the FEC, it's not the Federal Election Commission, which actually has nothing to do with the administration of elections. Uh, Don, I'll turn it over to you to start. Tell our viewers, what is the EAC? Why do we have it? Uh, what were its origins and how has it evolved over time? Well, sure. The Election Assistance Commission really came out of the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore. Well, the Congress came together and it came together with a bipartisan bill. And some of the issues they looked at was creating the EAC. They wanted to have a federal entity test and certify voting systems on a voluntary basis. They wanted to provide some monies to the states to transition to new voting systems. They also wanted to start collecting data and to provide best practices. And so the EAC started all the way back then. It's only been a couple of decades, but um, that is really the origin of the EAC. And since then, um, the budgets, there have been some smaller budgets and higher budgets. 
we are just coming out of a, uh, a couple of years where we almost uh, didn't exist as an agency. We are almost basically uh, eliminated as an agency. But I think that as the security issues arose out of 16, there was a refocus on what purpose the EAC could serve in actually assisting local and state election officials. And I think there's a sort of a change in that sort of a thinking across the board in the election community. And then uh, John kicked things off. He mentioned the Help America Vote Act. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what that is uh, and how, it, uh, how you interface with the states uh, to bolster uh, what the states do. Yeah, great to be here, Elliot. Thank you for me. The Help America Vote Act, uh, as Don mentioned, that was passed after the Florida 2000 election. Uh, it created the AC. It also did a number of things. It got rid of punch cards. Everybody remembers the hanging chads uh, from the 2000 elections. It helped get rid of those and provided a lot of funding to do that at the states. But because our elections are decentralized, one of the roles that we really play that Don hit on was serving as that federal clearinghouse. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, we're largely non-regulatory, but we're able to have that 50-state view. We conduct something called the EVE survey or the Election Administration and Voting Survey, which is the only national survey of its kind that looks at how Americans are getting registered, how they're participating in the process, uh, you know, in the sense of are they uh, getting registered at the DMV? Are they getting registered by uh, a third-party group? Are they voting by mail? Are they voting early? Are they voting in person? And so it really gives election administrators, policymakers, the ability to look at the data and make data-driven decisions. Uh, and so we're proud to do that, as well as assist state and local election officials around the country uh, with best practices, helping to share those. Uh, you know, we really have the benefit of seeing the different ways that states implement elections, how, how they solve this puzzle of helping Americans participate. And, and this year in particular, you were really able to see how that decentralized nature of elections, some of those best practices were able to be shared and help more Americans participate across the country, help election officials respond to the challenges they face this year. I think coming out of this election we just had, it's, it's harder to make these uh, arguments, but uh, playing devil's advocate, since its inception, the EAC has been criticized from the right as being obsolete uh, and also concerns about um, that we're attempting to federalize elections. Uh, what do you say to the critics who make these arguments? So first and foremost, again, we're largely a non-regulatory agency. Uh, and so again, if people are worried about federal overreach, you know, we're not designed to work that way. But I think you can really embrace sort of the decentralized nature of elections. And that's what we're structured to do. Again, as Don mentioned, there've been historic resource challenges uh, that make that harder. But when you think about what's involved with running elections, particularly after the foreign interference of 2016, uh, you know, election administration is harder than it's ever been. And so to have a non-regulatory, largely non-regulatory federal agency that's able to share best practices, that's able to assist with training, that's able to provide information whether uh, and resources, whether those are grants from Congress. Certainly, uh, you know, we've seen over $800 million in security money distributed since 2018, $400 million in CARES Act funding this year. Obviously, that's made a big difference, but there are also resources that are beyond just, uh, just money. There's also the ability to use the the national platform. Uh, one of the things that we did this year that I'm really proud of, uh, we heard consistently from election officials about shortages recruiting poll workers. And we were able to launch the National Poll Worker Recruitment Day effort. Uh, again, having a national platform, uh, a national website in helpamericavote.gov. But when you went to that website, it got you to your local election official or to your state or local, state or local election official you know, the place that you ultimately needed to get to, but we were able to amplify that at a national level. And that really made a difference in getting a new generation of poll workers to step up and help Americans vote this year. Don, in the lead up to the election in November, what else did you see in terms of, um, you know, potential issues that were out there? You know, for those who are in the election business, um, you know, we know that elections are messy. Um, 
you know, vote fraud exists. This is my opinion. Vote fraud exists. Vote suppression exists. But uh, a lot of what we ultimately see is just uh, cracks in the systems, which we can fix along the way. And so in the lead up to 2020, what else beyond the poll worker issue uh, did you see that, that uh, brought you the most concern? Well, in the lead up to uh, 2020, you know, the issue, the big issue that we faced all together was the pandemic. And, you know, just like every other institution in the in the country, um, we that was a big challenge. How were we actually going to administer elections? And states and localities had the same concerns. How are we going to pull off the primaries? How are we going to do a general election? And perhaps a totally different environment where people may be afraid to actually go and vote. And so a lot of states and localities had to make adjustments to how they vote. Uh, they, there was more vote by mail than ever before. When we did do in-person voting for early or election day, there was, it was gonna have to be in a sanitized manner. There's gonna have to be social distancing. So there were gonna be some additional lines. And so when we look back on 2020, that was a huge challenge and really election officials stepped up to it because it was a success from a point of view that in many ways there could have been a total meltdown. And, and you're right, in every election, there's gonna be flaws, there's gonna be lines, there may be malfunctions of the voting systems. And I think that the EAC and I know the states are very, you know, they're very proud of the work they put into, let's make sure and test our voting systems, let's make sure they're secure and they're operational and they're not gonna break down on election day. Now, sometimes these things happen and we record these things and we wanna improve for the next election. And so those were the two big issues. I think that everybody was concerned that, look, we wanna do everything we can to make sure that on election day and in a run up to election day, election workers are prepared to deal with the, the great turnout, you know, that voters will have when they show up. When you have 10%, 15% increase in turnout, it's gonna, it's gonna stress the system. It's gonna make everything a little bit more difficult than it would be, let's say, if turnout was half of that. But I think that one of the things we can take away from November is that we got through the election and that we were able to overcome the pandemic in many ways and Americans were actually able to uh, cast a vote and effectuate their intent. And, and the bottom line is that's, that's the bottom line is that we were able to do that. And if compared to past elections, I mean, obviously we were dealing with things that we had never experienced before with the pandemic um, and the, the volume of mail-in ballots um, that was, you know, unprecedented. I mean, we certainly have mail-in ballots and we've dealt with this before, but just the volume is something we hadn't dealt with. Um, how overall, you know, what's your, what's your assessment at this point? I know the EAC is going to be having hearings and you're going to audit uh, the actual results, but how comfortable are you at this point uh, in terms of the overall result as compared to past elections? Uh, you know, Elliot, I think one of the stories that's been lost sort of in, in some of the post-election day, um, I don't know, back and forth, or with some of the, the misinformation and disinformation uh, has been the amazing job that election officials did this year. Uh, again, as Don was saying, uh, you know, ramping up for the pandemic, uh, you know, unprecedented challenges. It, you had people who were running, as you said, the largest mail election that they'd ever run, uh, but also needing to keep polling places uh, as safe as possible for in-person voters. Uh, and what you saw, I mentioned this earlier, the way that some of the election community came together. You had, you had folks from uh, you know, Oregon and Washington and Colorado and Utah who'd been running you know, full mail elections or who had done that transition sharing the lessons learned with their colleagues across the country through vehicles like the EAC, through we had a working group within the government coordinating council, which is federal, state, and local partners. We're able to share those best practices for jurisdictions that had maybe not experienced as much mail, who didn't have that luxury of time to ramp up. Uh, we were also able to share information uh, you know, from partners with the CDC on how you make polling places as safe as possible. Uh, and then also what you saw was an amazing job getting the word out that voters were going to need to spread their vote out to help limit congestion. You know, again, that was in the CDC guidance. And so you did. You saw a record amount of mail and absentee voting. You saw a record amount of early in-person voting. Uh, and you still had a significant election day turnout, which is why we had nearly around 160 million Americans vote. But the, the mechanics, the election administration of 2020 
uh, was really done well. Uh, as Don mentioned earlier, there were hiccups. There always are. That's what, that's what happens when you have 160 million people involved in a process across, you know, over 9,000 jurisdictions across the country. Uh, you know, there are, there are going to be hiccups, but none of those were significant. None of those were out of the ordinary uh, and again, in, in my 20 years, this is the best run election I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I appreciate those comments because I think that um, when we describe elections, um, sometimes the media forgets that this is a partnership. Um, and even going back to um, Chris Krebs, who was at DHS and in charge of the cyber office, and the uh, comment that ultimately got the president's attention led to his firing, um, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm correct, that statement was actually part of a joint statement that, Ben, you were a part of uh, that talked about the overall success of the election. So on one hand, you have the underlying result. You also have uh, criticism for the person saying it and whether or not that person's in the right position or that expertise. I think what we really lost in that entire situation was that that was really a statement that reflected a federal state, local, and to some extent, even private party partnership. And it was the assessment of all those um, components of our system. That's right. And again, it was about the security of the election. And, and the reason that that statement was made and the people were able to say that with confidence was because we'd seen what had gone into it. You know, the $800 million in federal grant money that had gone out for security that had replaced paperless voting machines that had hardened statewide voter registration databases. It had led to countless hours of training for state and local election officials around the country. Uh, you know, you had seen over the last four years the amount of work that state and local election officials put in, uh, you know, again, uh, going through these trainings, going through tabletop exercises, replacing equipment. Uh, you know, increasing audits. And so all of those pieces contributed uh, to a knowledge of how much had been done, uh, contributed to having, um, you know, the ability, the visibility across the country. Again, as you know, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's, there's nearly 9,000 jurisdictions around the country, but for the first time ever, uh, you know, you had, you had network monitoring in all of those states. You have thousands of jurisdictions that now uh, participate in an election information sharing and analysis center. Those things didn't exist before. And ultimately you had, um, you know, over 90% of Americans voting on a paper ballot or with a paper uh, or on a system with a paper audit trail. And so all of those could be reviewed. Again, all of those factors just adding to the confidence we had in the security of the election. Yeah, in terms of, um... You know, we'll get to the litigation, but you know some of these underlying issues uh, that are, are allegations that have been raised. Um, how do you feel about that, uh, given where you guys sit? Um, um, you must have some reaction. I, I know we probably don't want to go state by state in terms of litigation, but you must have some reaction in terms of what's ultimately alleged in court, and we'll talk about that. But the the, tr the allegations that really. Uh, that we saw that were unprecedented in terms of the uh, the attack on the integrity of our system. I mean, given that this, this is not what just you do day to day, but you've, you've built your career on it. How does that make you feel? Well, the, you know, I think that um, I had the opportunity to testify to the Senate and we talked a little bit about, you know, the unprecedented attack on the voting systems and the accuracy and uh, of those systems. And, and frankly, that is something that both Ben and I are, and the, and the commissioners that serve on the commission, that's our overreaching over uh, duty. And, you know, I've been involved at the state level in the testing of uh, voting systems and now at the federal level. And, and so there's a whole mechanism for the testing. And it's not new. I mean, look, going back since I started in this uh, second career, um, I've heard criticism of the voting systems and the testing of it and how we could do better. And, and much of that is true, is that that's why I always have a, a sense of trying to improve what we do from an over, oversight perspective and testing and listening to experts. But I think that at some point, you know, as I was asked is, do you have trust in our voting systems? And I think generally uh, the evidence is there that our, our voting systems have been tested both at the federal and state level and at the local level 
for, mul for a multitude of elections. And so the allegations that were made against the voting systems uh, just were not accurate. And I'm always have an open mind and I try not to, uh, you know, cut people off, but um, the evidence just wasn't there to prove that. And then the second part of that is, is again, you know, there's, there's other ways to sort of try to, or attempt to defraud a, a voting a process or an election that may not involve voting systems. And, but again, those, that's outside our jurisdiction. And again, there were opportunities for candidates and campaigns and law enforcement to, bring, to do investigations and prove that. And they never brought that evidence. And so the reality of it is, is that, that the evidence is simply not there to make allegations of, of fraud that would go to a point where, for example, you know, 10 to 12,000 in Georgia, 20,000 in Wisconsin, the, the differentials in the races were, were to a point where um, the amount of fraud that may take place at a local level would not reach the level of changing results at the state level. Uh, and so we had the opportunity to talk about what we do at the AC to protect those voting systems and how we work with locals. And that's what we did. And, and we just let the chips fall where they, where they, where they would fall. And I'd add to that, Elliot, you know, uh, again, the folks who run elections across the country, the state and local election officials who do this, uh, you know, this isn't a job you get into because you want to get rich. I mean, these people care more about the integrity of our elections than anyone I know. You know, they want to get it right. Uh, and that's that's bipartisan across the country. Uh, you know, the parties not trusting each other isn't a new thing. And so the whole structure of the system has bipartisan checks and balances throughout the process, whether that's bipartisan teams in polling places, uh, you know, sometimes you got the back end piece, uh, but throughout you have all of these checks and balances built in the, to the process to make sure it's accurate. You know, some of the time, uh, frankly, that it took to get results was tied into security measures that are put in place. You know, I remember seeing, uh, you know, people were talking about, uh, you know, getting results in Nevada. Uh, and, and the local official there, Joe Gloria, was giving a press conference and he was talking about how they were reconciling provisional ballots. Uh, again, they were doing that, checking with colleagues across the state, checking with the Secretary of State to make sure that no one had voted in more than one place, to make sure that people were eligible to vote in that jurisdiction. And again, those are safeguards and safety measures that are put in place to make sure that the election does have integrity. Uh, and again, what we ended up seeing um, you know, was a lot of rhetoric that wasn't backed up with facts or evidence. Uh, again, my experience has been, uh, if you present any of that to election officials, they want to get to the bottom of it. You know, again, they have all these procedures in place uh, to ensure the integrity of the election. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, there was ample opportunities to present that in court, and we never saw it. Yeah, I think ultimately the Trump campaign went one in 62, something like that in terms of the challenges. Um, how closely were you following that along the way? Um, were there times in certain states where you thought, you know, these allegations, um, you know, more serious than others? Um, is there anything that really got your attention during that time? Uh, you know, following it, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the job. Obviously there was a lot. So, uh, you know, some days, some days it was a little hard to keep all the different things straight, but I think what you kept focusing on was, you know, let's see, let's see the evidence, let's hear, you know, where there are valid claims. And if those are, you know, if there are valid claims, let's get to the bottom of it. Uh, again, I think, uh, you know, the point of running elections is to uh, give the people a chance to make their voice heard and, and make sure that the outcome reflects the will of the voters. And so, uh, you know, again, I think where there, you know, sometimes there were allegations made, obviously there were a lot of things that were around and when you dug into that, uh, you know, there were answers, um, you know, there were misunderstandings of the process, there were just rumors or, or conspiracy theories that, that, that frankly didn't make sense. But again, uh, you know, it was certainly, it was certainly an effort to try to keep track of, of the volume and everything that was going around. It was important to, you know, try to educate people uh, to the process where we could, uh, you know, certainly whether that intersected with things like our certification program uh, or elections generally, you know, one of the things that I don't think 
we anticipated how it would come into play, but was was an important effort this year that that I know we were proud to participate in was the National Association of Secretaries of State uh, drove an effort called Trusted Info 2020, which was really about getting people to go to their state and local election officials for that source information. And really, again, getting that from the source, how the process works. Uh, and I think once uh, you got down to that, again, you saw so often uh, you know, that there wasn't a real basis in this, or it was a confusion about um, different processes. And so, you know, I'd like to see us do more to, to help people understand the process. Obviously, uh, you know, a lot of folks got a pretty big civics lesson this year, uh, but I think we can continue to talk about uh, the work that happens after election day. You know, I think most people are used to tuning into the news on election night, seeing the result and then forgetting about the election, not knowing that there are weeks worth of work still to go in processing those ballots and confirming whether or not people were eligible in recording voter history, you know, all of those checks and balances that we mentioned that go into the, to the canvas and certification process. And so, uh, you know, I think, uh, again, one of the things that we can do as an agency is look for more ways uh, to help educate Americans on the process and make that more accessible. Elliot, when I, when I was following a lot of it, but I, I, started to focus on those issues that involve the EAC, like the voting systems and, and that sort of thing. And I think that one of the things I found is that oftentimes, you know, an election worker error or some other error would be confused with some sort of vulnerability in a voting system. And, and so a little bit of investigation into that would, re would reveal that, you know, what I found frustrating at the EAC is that we're a small agency and um, some of these facts were easily obtainable, but we weren't always asked to provide commentary. I think that um, from, a, from a perspective of oversight, I think the EAC could try to play more of a role as an independent third party uh, for testing. You saw some of that, for example, with one of our accredited labs in Georgia, was there were some issues regarding allegations of voting systems in Georgia, and I believe it was like eight to 10 uh, counties uh, basically sent the software to an accredited lab and they did a review of the software to make sure it was still the same software. There hadn't been any changes. And, and after a, re a review, that was what that lab found. But as I, as I think about what the EAC could do in the future is that we could do more of that for in the assistance of localities and states that um, perhaps there's a, a level of distrust that they may not, they may not um, believe each other of political parties, for example, but they may, uh, the EAC may be able to play a more uh, beneficial role in the future, sort of looking at the forensics of some of these things after the election. That's just a thought. Yeah, and I think that um, you touched on this a little bit, but um, you know, part of this, uh, I think whole ordeal has been a good education for the American people and to some extent, even some of the councils involved. Um, Talk a little bit about this overvoting, undervoting issue, uh, which to me was one of the most flagrant examples of people talking about a concept uh, um, that happens in elections, uh, every election. Um, it is not unusual. It was not statistically different than we'd seen in the past. Um, but talk a little bit about that and, and maybe then how the media um, helped drive this uh, apparent controversy. So I can talk a little bit about it. I mean, overs and unders, actually, the overs and undervotes, you know, this first really came into play for, from my perspective after 2000, when there was a lot of debate of why there was a certain number of undervotes, which is, you know, members or candidates on down the ballot aren't, aren't having a, a ballot cast for them while there's, there's other members uh, on the ballot or, or candidates that are. And overvotes are when there may be more more ballots cast for two, two, two ballots cast for a candidate. And so these are basically mistakes on the part of the voter and, or they intentionally decide not to vote for certain candidates and decide to vote for others. But it became such an issue after 2000 that the Florida legislature required the reporting of that. So th these are the type of things that though can spawn conspiracies and, and why, why didn't my candidate get this many votes when this candidate th did. And I think that uh, explaining what they are and why there's split votes or there's undervotes uh, is a, is really an issue that I find myself paying uh, 
uh, playing political scientist occasionally explaining that Americans still do divide their votes. Sometimes they decide to undervote. And so um, not every candidate is going to have the same amount of votes. Ben, do you want to weigh in on this one? Yeah, I just add too. you know, you saw you saw a number of Americans voting in in different ways this year. Uh, you know, we know from the Eve survey that I mentioned earlier that that historically about 25 percent of Americans vote uh, by mail or absentee ballot. That number is probably going to be closer to 50 percent this year, uh, depending on a state's cure process. Uh, you know, in, in if you're in a polling place in person uh, and you accidentally vote for two candidates uh, for the same race, for example, an overvote, and you put that in a scanner, it's going to kick back and tell you that you may spoil that ballot. Uh, if you're doing that on a mail ballot uh, and your state doesn't have a cure opportunity, uh, you know, you, that vote's just canceled out in that race. And so, uh, again, that's a small thing, but but those are kind of those are the details. That's the nuance that goes into election administration. And that's the type of thing that you could see this year. And as, as Don mentioned, of course, uh, you know, there's oftentimes people that are going out for a particular candidate. Uh, you know, if anyone's lived in, uh, you know, some of the states with longer ballots, <laughs> you know, you definitely see drop off, uh, you know. Uh, and so there's there's an array of reasons that you do see these variables out there. Um, uh, and and again, it's just it's just part of election administration. Um, what about this allegation about votes being changed? That there was some sort of hack or some sort of systemic um, software manipulation? Um, talk a little bit, but not just the allegation, but also the nature of how these machines work and how uh, difficult, if not impossible, something like that could be. Well, one thing I'd point to there, you know, first and foremost, I mentioned earlier that you probably had about 95% of Americans vote uh, on a paper ballot or with a paper audit trail this year, which is way more than we've seen in recent elections. And, and you saw that, uh, you know, probably the, the best example to point to on, on talking about, um, you know, the audit process or whatever is, you know, you look at Georgia. Georgia was one of the closest races across the country. Uh, they, uh, they did, um, you know, they reviewed their ballots a number of times electronically. They did a hand, it was part of an audit process, but they essentially did a hand check of every single uh, ballot in the state. And, and those were all uh, largely identical, uh, you know, and again, that is a check, that paper audit trail is a check on the computer system. Uh, and so it, even if you were somehow manipulating coding, uh, you know, you've got to then be manipulating a paper audit trail that that voters don't detect that or see that. And, and so, again, if you think about a presidential race, uh, many times that's the primary reason somebody's going to go vote. Uh, and so do you really think that that, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people aren't going to notice? Uh, you know, there's there's some uh, there's some research papers on it that I won't go into that bore you. But the point is that. Uh, you know, you have this check, you have this ability to audit uh, that was done electronically, that was done by hand, and, and time and again, it, it it reinforced the results and showed that the systems were accurate. And that was in Georgia, but that was around the rest of the country. And again, that's part of the checks and balances that are built in the system to ensure the integrity of the election. I think another interesting uh, development we've seen over the past few weeks uh, is the uh, the litigation and has been filing uh, and the threats of litigation against media outlets. Uh, we've seen retractions from Fox, Newsmax, the conservative thinker. Um, what extent, I mean, this is something we've, we've never really seen at this level uh, in all candor. Do you think this in and of itself will help self-police uh, things moving forward that uh, maybe uh, meet the media is realizing they have to be, you know, behavior and actually, you know, uh, report the news based on facts about that? I certainly, I mean, I want to say something that my dad used to say to me, but it's probably not appropriate for this forum. Uh, you know, the more polite version is probably the, the Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, you're in, you're entitled to your opinion, but not your own facts. And, you know, I think when we're talking about our democracy, when we're talking about how our elections run, uh, you know, 
we have got to have a baseline of facts and truth there. Uh, you know, and I think when we get away from that, uh, it really hurts the fabric of our nation. It hurts our democracy. Uh, you know, uh, the rules of the game get set. You run by that, you win and you lose. Um, and, and foundationally that's got to matter. Um, and we've got to respect the will of the people. That's how, that's whole, how this whole experiment got kicked off a few hundred years ago. Right. That's right. So uh, we're, we're just past, you know, 2020, 2022 is on the horizon. Um, what do you see as, as next steps in terms of improving uh, what it is we do? Uh, what are the things that you think the EAC can help us with, you know, as we get ready for the next one? Well, one of the things that I, I see is um, on election day, one of the major issues that we kept hearing about was electronic poll books were having some issues breaking down or having issues connecting with voter registration systems. And one of the allegations out of Georgia was that their, you know, one of their um, electronic poll books was hacked remotely. This gets to a point where non-voting systems um, don't really have the same regulatory scheme that we've talked about, where there's testing and certification, but they are connected to the internet and they're vital to election services. And so, you know, many states will do some testing. Um, obviously they buy this equipment, they need it. Um, one of the things we've looked at the DAC is how can we provide assistance to the states and that, you know, in testing of that equipment, how can we provide some recommendations and how can we provide the information that we find to localities on that equipment? Because non-voting systems becoming, you know, it's becoming more, it's becoming more vulnerable, uh, yet it's vital to how we do elections in this country. And so it's one thing the EAC is gonna be looking at because we frankly wanna have our non-voting systems as secure as we believe our voting systems are. And we've got some work ahead of us and we're gonna do that. Yeah, from a security perspective, that seems to me, I agree, it's, it's one of the most vulnerable areas. And, um, you, know, you know, moving forward, I think that that's um, it's something Secretary Chertoff spoke in our last session about. Um, you know, we haven't really seen, it's been remarkable how little uh, success has been uh, by third parties in terms of hacking our election infrastructure as opposed to other critical infrastructure in the United States. And so, you know, on one hand, I think we've been very fortunate and we've been prepared, but moving forward, uh, we have to be, we have to recognize that as a huge vulnerability. Well, I think that um, the whole solar winds uh, scenario has really awoke, you know, awakened some eyes because, you know, it's like we, we can believe that we're doing a good job protecting ourselves and securing our systems, but in some ways we may not know um, the extent of our vulnerability until after the fact. And so I, from my perspective, I think that we, this tells us a lot that we can never let our guard down, frankly, from a substantive point of view, is um, you may already be hacked and simply don't know it. I mean, this goes back into some aspect of what happened in 2016. You know, there was some allegations and, and the truth of the matter is it's a little bit unknown, but what we believe what happened is there was a number of counties in Florida, probably two or three, that, that there were some vulnerabilities there where they were infiltrated. Nothing, no voter registration data was uh, captured. But what that tells us is that sometimes these things occur without us really knowing about it. And we may not know about it for national security reasons for years. And so as we sit here today, uh, we may not know the full extent of solar winds and other, uh, other you know, what foreign countries have, have, have tried to do with our critical infrastructure. And one thing I'd add to that, Elliot, I mean, I think a couple things. So first of all, uh, at DAC, we're on the verge of, of adopting a new set of voluntary voting system standards. Uh, that's a big deal. And it will include things like software independence and, and offering additional support for audits. That, that's a big piece of what we were talking about. Uh, you know, to Don's point, computers are hackable. That's the reality. So do you have systems in place, safeguards in place to ensure that you're able to detect that you're able to pick that up. That was that goes into the point I was making earlier about the amount of paper that we saw this year, the fact that more and more states and jurisdictions are implementing audits. And so to the degree that we can help uh, enhance that, increase that, I think that's an important piece. Uh, but, but we also know 
um, that the lowest hanging fruit in many ways is disinformation and misinformation. And so, uh, you know, as I look at how we can play a role, I, as we look at the things that can be done, uh, I think a lot of it is helping people to uh, get that trusted source information. Uh, some of that is a resourcing issue. Don mentioned earlier, uh, our budget, uh, it's increased a little bit in the last couple of years, thankfully. Um, but, but, you know, even, even this year, you know, we just got our, our largest budget in over a decade at $15 million. That is well below, you know, the Federal Election Commission that does campaign finance is around 70. Uh, and that's nothing compared to the agencies that most people are familiar with. Uh, and so, there is a need to invest uh, in our democracy, whether that's the EAC, whether that's uh, with state and local governments. Uh, you know, again, we've provided, a, the Congress has provided through the EAC a lot of grant money, but we consistently hear from state and local election officials about the need for, for an ongoing funding stream. You know, I think about, uh, obviously, our democracy is core to our identity as a nation, core to what we do and what we believe in. Uh, and when you talk about election administration, that's the infrastructure of our democracy. And so investing in that, making sure that uh, the systems are working the way that they're supposed to, investing in that in a way that can educate people. Uh, one of the things I'd love to see us do uh, is, is, you know, again, knowing that elections are decentralized, um, you know, have a one-stop shop where we can get people to the right place, to their secretary of state, to their state board of elections, to their local election official, or, or get them that information from that trusted source uh, so that we can help people understand the process better, understand how they participate in the process, you know, help people fact check things more quickly, uh, you know, to try to combat this mis and disinformation that you see in this space. You know, we're getting close to our time here, but I did want to ask a couple more questions. One is um, on voter roll accuracy. That seemed to be a really big issue on this election, it is an election, but I think this time around, it got a little bit more attention. What what can you guys do, you know, to help states clean up their voter rolls? Because I think that is a, that's a strong way that we can bolster our integrity in our system. Uh, well, certainly the National Voter Registration Act governs a lot of that. Uh, in Don's bio, it mentions his role in getting Virginia involved in the Electronic Registration Information Center, Eric. So I'll, I'll let him hit that. That's obviously an important effort and step. But uh, again, I think, uh, you know, there, list maintenance is a challenge, but, but, you know, voter rolls being clean is good for everybody. It saves jurisdictions money. Uh, you know, it prevents, uh, it prevents sort of accusations being made about this or that. Uh, but the reality is it's a real challenge. You have, uh, you have Americans that turn 18 every day. You have Americans that, uh, die every day. You have Americans that move every day. And, and that requires uh, a constant effort to maintain uh, election rolls. And it is a real challenge. Um, certainly uh, one that I think, uh, you know, to the degree that we can uh, help with best practices, I think that's a great effort. Uh, you know, again, I'll let Don talk about Eric, but efforts like that, I think, are, are hugely important to ensuring that the rolls are as accurate as possible, that Americans are engaged uh, and to the degree I mentioned sort of some of the voter education piece, uh, folks, you know, helping Americans know that they need to update their address is a big piece of that. You know, people move, they, you know, they maybe go on and, and update their address with the post office and they think that takes care of it, um, you know, but it doesn't. Uh, and so uh, it's important for people to know they need to update their registration, whether that's moving across state lines or, or down the street, because you may have you may be in a different jurisdiction or it may just save you time on election day uh, to make sure you've got that right address. So those are important things to be able to emphasize. So Ali, I think that the twin, you know, the voter, voting, voting systems was one of the major parts that came out of HAVA and the upgrade of that. One of the things that get that sort of misremembered or not remembered is voter registration systems at the state level was the other sort of factor there. And, you know, I really think that across the country, when I look at, we really need a revolution in technology and upgrading those systems, both at the state and local level. And this is where Congress can really help because again, this is a major part of the Help America Vote Act was to allow the states to have these databases 
And so the more technology and the high, you know, the more we upgrade those systems, the more accurate our voter registration systems are going to be. So there's a substantive part of that. And there's also the perception. And the perception is, is that um, why do we have, you know, people that shouldn't be on the rolls on the rolls? And I think that, you know, the Congress or the states really need to dedicate funding to that purpose. You know, there's a lot of priorities and local election officials often just don't have the resources to do uh, list maintenance, the amount that they should be doing it, you know, every quarter, for example. Um, usually they're going to need additional resources uh, to do that. I do think that, you know, if the EAC can provide best practices or, you know, helping jurisdictions find what's the best address for individuals, that's the type of thing that I think that localities would be, you know, would be, would be helpful to, to localities. And so those are some of the things that I think that Congress or policymakers can look at is sort of how can we improve those voter registration systems? What about on ballot harvesting and chain of custody issues? Uh, you know, I'm an advocate for in-person voting, uh, but after this last election, I think we all have to be prepared for, you know, just increased mail-in voting moving forward. We may not see what we saw, you know, in 2020, but I think it's going to be there. What more can the states do to address this issue of ballot harvesting and, and make sure that the chain of custody for mail-in voting is clear and that, again, uh, from a public confidence standpoint, we're in the best position we can be in. Well, I, I think without getting into too many the, the policy debate over it, I think that technology can really help us sort of uh, mitigate the problem that, that may have come with, with certain uh, policies. I think that if we sort of use technology to track where ballots are when it's in the possession of an election office, or through the, the mail system, that gives everybody, you know, a warm and fuzzy that we know where the ballots are, we, we're keeping track of them. Sometimes these things cost money um, to implement existing technologies. And so once again, I encourage, you know, when I was at the state level, I spent most of my time trying to sell new technologies to localities and why it will help them do their job. And I think that it really sells itself. I mean, a lack of a lack of a chain of custody may actually come to burn a local election official very, very much so. Even, you know, the largest jurisdictions sometimes have difficulty maintaining a chain of custody. That's why it's so important. Failure to do so can get you on the six o'clock news or, or, even, or even on the national news. And that's where we don't want to be. And so sort of transparency and using technology to improve chain of custody Help us helps the local election officials do their job. Help helps us all do our job better and avoid what could become a political or partisan issue down the road. And just to build off that technological point, you know, I think you saw more jurisdictions during doing ballot tracking this year. Uh, you know, that has been an an innovation uh, that has been spreading. Uh, you know, and I think it goes a long way to solving a number of problems. Number one, I think it helps with voter confidence. People know. Uh, where their ballot is in the system. Uh, they know when it's been received, if it's, you know, with the post office, it helps election officials to be able to see, uh, you know, catch problems before they really start. Uh, you know, maybe they get a call and they investigate it, and then they see, oh, there's a pallet still sitting in a warehouse at the post office, uh, you know, and they're able to solve that. Uh, it helps with staffing issues, you know, to know how many ballots are coming in a particular day. You can adjust for temps and uh, you know, I, I had heard that the post, there was a, the Federal Voting Assistance Program did a, a pilot. They, they specialize with military and overseas voters. They did a pilot with the USPS on full end-to-end -end tracking and checking on how that impacted voter confidence. And, and one of the things that I heard out of that was that they could do that for all military and overseas voters for between six and eight million dollars. And if you scaled up to that, it would be applicable or it would work for voters across the country. Uh, and so in the scope of things that, that for probably $8 million, we could have end-to-end -end ballot tracking for, for uh, you know, all the ballots across the country. That is a relatively minor investment, but one that needs to be made if you want that kind of service, if you want that kind of confidence. Uh, but I think that would be a great service for the voters, uh, you know, both in giving individual Americans confidence in their process, but also helping uh, election officials uh, as well. Great. Well, Ben, Don,
John, thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. And thank you for your service. It's great uh, to be here. Thank you. We're, we're proud of you. John, back over to you. Thank you, everybody who tuned in to today's SALT Talk. I think it was a fantastic conversation. Thanks again, Elliot, for leading uh, this series on election integrity and election operations. That last bit gave me a lot of hope that we can continue to build on the system that we have, which I think is fantastic. And people don't give the election workers around the country enough credit for what they've done for many years, but especially what they did this year in the midst of a raging pandemic to ensure uh, that we had a secure and fair election. Uh, I think it's just amazing what they were able to pull off. And hopefully we can continue to build on our sort of technological uh, base that we have for our elections and, and restore integrity that has been called into question, I think, unfairly uh, by, by some people in this country. We, don't, we won't name names. But uh, anyways, thank you, everybody, for tuning into today's SALT Talk. By tuning in, hopefully uh, you're able to learn some things that you didn't know before about election operations and can continue to spread the word uh, about the facts of the matter in terms of our election processes here in the United States. Uh, but this was the second episode in our three episode series uh, on election operations and elections integrity. We have an, one more coming up in a couple of weeks with the secretaries of state of Michigan and Georgia. That's secretary of state Jocelyn Benson in Michigan, a Democrat and secretary of state Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, a Republican. It's been very important to us that we make this a nonpartisan and in some cases a bipartisan conversation around the facts of election operations and elections integrity. So we're very excited about that uh, episode of this series. And just a reminder, if you missed our previous episode of uh, our elections integrity series with Secretary, uh, former Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, uh, Michael Chertoff, you can see that at salt.org backslash talks. If you missed any part of this episode, you can watch it again on our website at salt.org backslash talks or at our YouTube channel. And please, I always say this after every episode, but please spread the word about SALT Talks and about this SALT Talk in particular. I think it's so important that as a society, we, we get the facts straight and we spread the word uh, about the truth about uh, the way our elections operate. So please spread the word. Uh, we're also on social media. Please follow us. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. And on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. I will see you back here in a couple of weeks for the last episode of our Elections Integrity Series with Secretaries Brad Raffensperger and Jocelyn Benson. Thank you.